Welcome. This is the next uh, in the upper limb uh, podcast. This is on the wrist and the uh, hand. Uh, for those keeping score, this is AUL9. We're going to follow this one with a review of the carpal bones uh, and uh, perhaps an overview of the um, <clears throat> the neurology of the upper limb. And then there'll be an upper limb uh, quiz. Uh, there'll be a short hiatus and we'll then move into the lower limb. I'd like to remind those who are enjoying these podcasts, if they can support us in any way at all through our uh, patron uh, site. So that is on, it's not Patreon, but it's Patron, H-T-T-P-S uh, colon double slash. So it's Patron p-a-t-r-o-n dot podbean dot com slash anatopod that is capital a-n-a-t-o-p-o-d and we appreciate your support um i think uh, that we need to step it up a little bit and so gradually you'll find that the sites um will be for patrons uh, only so we'll be leaving up these sites for about a month or so and then they'll revert into uh, patrons only so they won't be able um, to be accessed and uh, it's just that we need to improve our um, um, coffers so that we can convert to uh, an audiovisual channel or at least certainly expand our services. So they'll continue to be available but there'll be a short period of time or window uh, when uh, it'll subsequently revert to uh, patron access uh, only and it'll disappear from the listings so that I'll drop occasional listings of what um, is available both on our um, uh, Facebook site and also on this site uh, for those who are um, interested. Um, let's begin with the wrist. In the wrist we include a conversation about the carpal bones although I'm, I'm going to include that in the next one. Uh, the flexor and extensor retinacular and the basic hand structure. Now, by definition, the flexor palmar surface is the palm, and we'll use this to define the anatomy also of hand space infections. The extensor surface of the hand is best referred to, I think, as the dorsal surface. <clears throat> the palmar median and ulnar nerve split is pretty similar in the sole of the foot with the medial and lateral plantar nerves respectively. The dorsal split in the hand is, of course, the radial ulnar nerve split. Both the hand and the foot are protected by a palmar and a plantar aponeurosis, respectively, and each has archetypically four discrete muscle layers, although this can be structured differently by some. And in this basic setup under the aponeurosis lie the short muscles to the thumb and the little finger, which are the most dexterous digits. And then the long flexor tendons with the unique insertional arrangement. And then the adductor pollicis muscle, which uh, uh, also has some unique elements. And then we're on the metacarpals with the three palmar and the four dorsal interossei and their particular structure. The foot, of course, has unique musculature on the flexor aspect, the quadratus plantae or flexor accessorius 
and on the dorsum, the extensor digitorum brevis, including the extensor haliusis brevis, although in the hand, the homologue of the latter, the extensor haliusis brevis, could be considered the extensor indices. Now, the dorsum of the hand is rather uninteresting uh, in all of this, so let's dispense with it. The cutaneous nerve supply is shared, as I've said, between the radial nerve and the dorsal branch of the ulnar nerve, and the split is typically three and a half and one and a half. And there's a dorsum that extends to the middle of the middle phalanx with less of a dorsal supply by the lateral and medial plantar nerves than the median and ulnar nerves in the hand. In the foot, for example, the dorsal supply from these plantar nerves is down to about the nail bed or so. But in the hand, as I say, it's down to about the middle phalanx. So it's a little bit more cutaneous extensor side uh, supply on the hand. The dorsal venous network, of course, in the hand forms on the dorsum draining radially as the origin of the cephalic vein and on the ulnar side as the beginnings of the basilic vein. The extensor tendons have already been discussed here with a common extensor digitorum communis and extensor indices to the index. There's the split extensor digiti minimi and the tendon slip attachment at about the level of the metacarpophalangeal joint to the extensor apparatus. There is a posterior carpal arch of arterial anastomosis and that's a combination of the radial ulnar and anterior interosseous arteries, and that sends dorsal metacarpal arteries along the spaces deep to the extensor tendons, and they split around the digits, and they also anastomose with the deep palmar arch. So we have in the previous podcast, I think, already considered the extensor retinaculum. The flexor retinaculum is the critical anatomy of the carpal tunnel syndrome, so we need to know its attachments. The anatomy here has clinical or surgical relevance. And it's a thick lattice. It attaches on its radial side to the tubicle of the scaphoid and the ridge of the trapezium. Now I'll go into this in a bit more detail about the individual carpal bones in the next podcast, but suffice to say that almost everything on the radial side attaches either indirectly or directly to the tubicle of the scaphoid and the ridge of the trapezium. That's really all you've got to remember. That includes the origins of part of the thena muscles, uh, the abductor pollicis brevis and the flexor pollicis brevis. Likewise, the medial or ulnar attachments of the flexor retinaculum is to the pisiform and the hook of the hamate. The hypothena muscles there, the abductor digiti minimi and the flexor digiti minimi also attach here. So these four little points are all that has to be remembered. The tubicle of the scaphoid and the ridge of the trapezium on the radial side, the pisiform and the hook of the hamate on the ulnar side. Now, <coughs> all of these little points are also all palpable. Uh, the muscles, the thena and the hypothena, also, as I have said, have, uh, by definition, take some of their origin from the flexor retinaculum. Okay, so really it's quite easy to remember. The palmar aponeurosis also, of course, has its attachment here. The ulnar nerve passing in front of the retinaculum and held against the pisiform by that little unique so-called guyons canal where it too can become entrapped. And it's here that the ulnar nerve divides into its superficial and deep branches. 
The superficial maize supply, the palmaris brevis, it's a little subcutaneous muscle, as I've described before, and is one of the ways of testing the ulnar nerve. Now, we'll go into that another time, but otherwise it's cutaneous, this superficial branch of the ulnar nerve, to the ulnar side of the little finger, and the ring finger where it splits. And that's not, for example, like the foot, where the superficial branch of its homologue, the lateral plantar nerve, innervates the muscles of that side of the foot, such as the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, and also commonly the interossei of that last space, that is, the third plantar and the fourth dorsal interosseous muscles. In other words, in the foot, the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve has some muscle supply, whereas in the hand it's very minimal. The superficial branch of the ulnar nerve, its equivalent, has very little muscle uh, muscular supply. The cutaneous distribution of the lateral plantar nerve is pretty homologous to the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve. The job of the deep branch of the ulnar nerve is, of course, different, ultimately sinking into the adductor pollicis muscle, and it's the main innovation of the intrinsic muscles of the hand. So this is the classic claw hand that people develop with an ulnar nerve palsy, the ulnar nerve supplying most of the intrinsic musculature of the hand. So an ulnar nerve palsy is more anatomically and functionally devastating, therefore, than a median nerve palsy, and that's for anatomical reasons. And I'll come back to these points later, of course, but here I'm just trying to highlight the differences, or some of the differences, between the hand and the foot structurally. Proximal to this flexor retinaculum, the ulnar nerve, of course, gives off the palmar cutaneous branch, which innervates the cutaneous part of the hypothenar eminence. And on the radial side, of course, is the palmar cutaneous median nerve, which innervates the skin over the thenar eminence. So then running through this carpal tunnel, of course, are the long flexors of the fingers and the thumb. They're all bunched together. Um, they're all uh, together with the typical split of the superficial uh, flexors as 3-4 in front and 2-5 behind. And then beneath these is the flexor digitorum profundus, usually with a separated index finger all lying in the same but a deeper plane. So these are all in a common synovial sheath so that an infection beginning in one distally can move to involve all of them. The sheath invaginates the tendons, which are enveloped, although not completely, on their radial side. And they seem to have been inserted into the synovial sheath a bit like a sandwich. So in the classical carpal tunnel syndrome, there can be no possible involvement, therefore, of that medial palmocutaneous nerve that's superficial and given off proximal to the compression point. And that point also distinguishes it from a compression at the ligament of Struthers, which we've mentioned in a previous podcast. A couple of little technical points about carpal tunnel. Um, if you're making an incision in the palm for carpal tunnel syndrome, don't do it directly in the depth of the skin fold, because if you don't do that, you do it just against it, the skin heals better. And you have to ensure at the end that those stitches are very well inverted, otherwise the thing can invert and split open. Um, I don't carry the incisions beyond the most distal wrist crease, if you look at your own wrist, so that there's no chance of injuring that palmar cutaneous branch that supplies the skin over the thenar eminence. 
if necessary, you want to make a, the incision larger, you can carry the incision transversely uh, at the distal wrist crease uh, for about half a centimetre or so on the ulna side, and that enlarges it. But try not to cross the crease. And for purists, the line of incision is actually called Kaplan's cardinal line. That is really from the apex of the first interdigital fold. The hook of the hamate lies at the intersection of this cardinal line, as I've defined it, and a line drawn as a proximal continuation of the ulnar side of the ring finger. The recurrent thena branch of the median nerve sinks into the thena muscles at the intersection of that cardinal line and the proximal continuation of the radial side of the index finger. And you can check this all out on your own hand. The superficial palmar arch lies between this cardinal line and the proximal palmar skin crease. And as I say, just check all these areas out on your own hand now, if you like. The palmar cutaneous branch passes over the tubicle of the scaphoid. There it is again. And this, as I've said, is palpable. Try and feel for it now. Now, you should define the proximal transverse end of the retinaculum. And once you've done that, you can place a small artery force up underneath it so you can divide it under vision. And you divide the retinaculum with a small protector, as I've said, underneath and get to the distal end of the retinaculum. And you can feel when that's freely mobilised and you see the median nerve with often a very small terminal branch of the median artery on top of it. You don't run your scissors blindly under the retinaculum with one blade on top and one underneath, as someone had shown me how to do. That, that way leads litigation. There have been median nerve injuries with that technique. Um, I am familiar with and have done endoscopic carpal tunnel releases, but the student can assess the anatomy of port placements as they need to. For those who are interested, uh, it was originally described uh, carpal tunnel uh, by Sir James Paget back in 1854. The term carpal tunnel itself was coined by Morsch in 1930. An endoscope was first used uh, for release of the syndrome by Akutsu in Japan in 1987. And there you've got to mark the tendons of the flexor carpi ulnaris and flexor carpi radialis, as well as the pisiform and the hook of the hamate. You then draw a line from the middle of the wrist flexion crease to the palmar base of the ring finger, uh, and that should pass radial to the mark over the hook of the hamate. There are a number of techniques with the hand, usually in deep extension, that this is done. Um, a couple of extra things are about median nerve variations. The Median nerve typically divides into six branches as the recurrent motor branch with a so-called proper digital nerve to the radial side of the thumb and a short common digital nerve to the first web space that quickly divides into a proper digital nerve to the ulna side of the thumb and a proper digital nerve to the radial side of the index finger and then two common digital nerves to the second and third web spaces. Lance has described four discrete variations in the carpal tunnel which include variations in the course of the thena branch, perhaps an accessory branch at the distal carpal tunnel, a high division of the distal nerve accessory branches proximal to the carpal tunnel. In up to 25% of cases, the motor branch perforates the retinaculum with a little precarious course, actually the recurrent thena branch, crossing in front of the distal edge of the retinaculum, uh, particularly when there's a hypertrophic abductor pollicis brevis, and that little aberrant branch can occasionally be duplicated or even triplicated 
which increases its injury risk. Um, we know, of course, that the median nerve itself uh, can be duplicated in the forearm. So just some little asides about variable anatomy and carpal tunnel release. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the wrist joint here, I think, in brief. It's a synovial joint incorporating the distal radius and the articulated disc of the distal radio-ulna joint with the scaphoid and the lunate, and in medial extension, pulling the hand in towards the body, uh, a small bit of articulation occurs with the triquetrum. So you can examine the lower end of the radius and you'll see that there's a small triangular facet for articulation with the scaphoid. Of course, the external marker of this is the radial styloid process. The rectangular facet next door to it articulates with the lunate. And the radial and ulnar thickenings of this joint are respectively the collateral ligaments. These are supplemented anteriorly and posteriorly with ligaments, some of which run from the lower end of the radius to the lunate to form a palmar radiocarpal ligament. They're not typically discreetly named, but they prevent the presentation or the formation of a volar lunate dislocation during a high-impact fall on the outstretched arm. Lunate dislocation does occur, uh, but this little uh, palmar radiocarpal ligament tends to prevent it. In that circumstance, the lunate separates from both the capitate and the radius, uh, but that's far less common, a lunar dislocation with it rotating 90 degrees, sitting in front of the carpus, than the so-called perilunate dislocation, where the wrist has been hyperextended, and here the, the lunate and the radius are actually correctly aligned, but the capitate and the lunate are not. So for those interested, you want to look at the anatomy of a lunate dislocation and compare it to a perilunate dislocation. The nerve supply to the, to the wrist is, of course, via the posterior interosseous nerve, the pin, as we know, and the anterior interosseous nerve, the median nerve. The principal movement is, of course, flexion and extension, but you also get abduction or adduction ulnar deviation and abduction radial deviation. It's a combination of these that leads to wrist circumduction. And like the foot, this issue is a little bit more complex since there is movement also at the mid-carpal joint in much the same way as there's movement in the foot at the mid-tarsal joint. An appreciation of the anatomy, by the way, of the mid-tarsus governs very special, more distal amputations. We'll go into that when we get into the foot uh, podcast. And this lies between uh, a transmetatarsal uh, amputation, pardon me, and a below-knee amputation. Um, and in the lower limb podcast, I'll go through these in more detail based on anatomy. But for those interested in checking these out now, I'll be discussing the Lise Franck and the Chopin amputations in particular, but also variations of these uh, of the so-called Pirogoff amputation. A little less uh, extension movement, for example, with the hand happens at the mid-carpus then with flexion. Extension occurs more at the wrist, and that has to do with the articular surfaces of each of these joints. Now, we have a similar movement pattern in the wrist as we have in the ankle, although the ankle deviations are different. But the point is that the flexor and extensor tendons carry out the main work movements in order to produce more complex combined movements. I'll explain what I mean with examples. But 
in the wrist flexion, in the wrist, um, a flexion is produced by the FCR and the FCU, the flexor carpi radialis and the flexor carpi ulnaris, working together really on either side as prime flexors. And these actions are supplemented by the palmaris longus, if it's present, and by the long flexors, superficial and deep, and by the flexor pollicis longus. In extension, there are the radial extensors, the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, and the extensor carpi ulnaris within between all the extensor digitorum communis and extensor indices. Abduction is largely the job of the abductor pollicis longus, but it is limited about 15 degrees or so because of the limitations of the bulky radial styloid. And similarly, adduction, which is a little more extensive, out to about 60 degrees or so, is a combined activity of the flexor and extensor carpi ulnaris, but that'll allow you to assist in medial uh, so-called adduction. In the same way, abduction is assisted by the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis and the flexor carpi radialis. And in each of these actions, as I said in an earlier podcast, this is because the insertions of all of these muscles are actually into similar points. To reiterate, since anatomy is often about repetition, the foot works the same way. There are dorsiflexors and plantar flexors, but in this case of the foot, and these muscles insert into the same points on bones, just on different sides between the flexor and extensor components. Their angulation allows muscles uh, to, um, then like the tibialis anterior, for example, to be an inverter of the foot, the equivalent to the hand's adduction. And for peroneus longus, or fibularis longus, depending on which book you prefer, to do the same, whilst plantar flexing the foot. So understanding the biomechanics here is, I think, crucial, really, to appreciating the anatomy. Both in the hand and in the foot, there are flexor and extensor guy ropes, and the radial and ulna, in the case of the hand, insertions of these are very similar, so that it allows the muscles to act in concert to abduct or adduct the hand to radially deviated or ulna deviated, so uh, whilst you're at any point of flexion or extension. Now, this moves us now on to, I think, the palm. I hope that people have understood what I'm talking about uh, in terms of the biomechanics of the hand. Now, the palm, really, I must say, was the first place that we were asked to dissect the cadaver. And I think, in hindsight, this wasn't a good choice. The dissector encounters a lot of fat here, which is the enemy of dissection. It's not a great place to start. And it's easy to appreciate the anatomy off of a prosected specimen, but we struggle with that as the start. If you want to put someone off anatomy, get them uh, to start with the palmar aponeurosis or the plantar aponeurosis, or get them to start with, a, with, with the dissection of the orbit where there's a lot of fat as well. And that'll really put them off. So I think it wasn't a great decision. Anyway, um, if you want to be a hand surgeon, on the other hand, you'll probably love it, and it's time well spent. In the hypothena part, you've got to define the little subcutaneous muscle, which I've mentioned already, the palmaris brevis, which, as we know, is part of the so-called paniculosis carnosis, or paniculus carnosis. The fat here is in tiny little lobulated caverns. It's broken into pockets with skin attachment. 
the palmer aponeurosis, is just like the plantar aponeurosis, is really the phylogenetically degenerate palmaris longus tendon. They're fused, and that divides into four basic slips that embrace the digit and that attach to both a superficial and a so-called deep transverse metacarpal ligament, both of which hold the metacarpals together. And this has secondary attachment to the fibrous flexor sheaths over the tendons, and over the hypothena and thena eminence it becomes fairly flimsy, so that you've got dexterous movement of the little finger and the thumb to allow opposition, which couldn't really occur if there was a thick inflexible aponeurosis here. So it's mainly in the centre of the palm, somewhat protective also of the palmar arch and neurovascular bundles. The aponeurosis provides a stable base really for the palm and is of course the site of development of a Dupatron's contraction. Okay, we're off and running now as we approach the thena eminence. Now, these three short muscles act on the thumb. They all have an origin from the flexor retinaculum. Radially, of course, is the abductor pollicis brevis, and it has that additional origin from the tubicle of the scaphoid, there it is again, and is inserted into the radial side of the base of the proximal phalanx. And it can merge a little bit with the tendon on the other side, the extensor pollicis longus, which is inserting here, but on the extensor side. So the two bits of fascia can fuse a little bit at this point. And that provides a greater stability for the proximal phalanx of the uh, thumb. Now, this muscle is typically the one that is supplied by the median nerve, that is the abductor pollicis brevis. And in testing for a median nerve injury, what you need to do is get the patient to hold their hand out flat. I always ask my students, test the, show me how you test the median nerve on me. And they sort of fumble around. All you really need to do is to place the hand out flat and just the lift the thumb up off the flattened hand on a table up against resistance. That's pretty pure median nerve function. Since the other muscles of the thena eminence, eminence uh, may either have aberrations anatomically or neurologically or have a different neurological innovation entirely. So I'll explain what I mean. The flexor pollicis brevis right, is the next muscle and this becomes relevant to answering this question. We need, obviously, to call it flexor pollicis brevis because we've already got a flexor pollicis longus, don't forget. So the flexor pollicis brevis can have an ulnar nerve supply, and I'll explain. The more ulnar woods to the abductor pollicis brevis is this flexor pollicis brevis. It, too, arises from the flexor retinaculum and the adjacent ridge of the trapezium. There it is and it inserts into the radial sesamoid bone and effectively to the radial side of the proximal thumb phalanx. If any of that muscle, or if the entire muscle, inserts into the ulnar sesamoid, then it's strictly not a flexor pollicis brevis, but rather is more likely to be part of an aberrant bit of the adductor pollicis, which of course would have a nerve supply from the deep ulnar nerve, we could also here get bits of a so-called first palmar interosseus on this ulnar side. And like all of the interossei, that too would have an ulnar nerve supply. Now, of course, we don't need a first palmar interosseus uh, to adduct and a dorsal interosseus to abduct to the principal digit. 
We've got those already. We've got an adductor of the thumb. That's, of course, the adductor pollicis. And we've got the abductor of the thumb, the abductor pollicis brevis, quite apart from the longus. So my long-winded point here is that these aberrant flexor pollicis brevis muscles, so-called aberrant, are really part of the thena musculature that could have an ulnar nerve innovation. And that shouldn't surprise us now based on what we've said. You got it? What, it's, what I'm saying is that if we're looking at bits of the functions of those muscles, they may not be true median nerve functions. So if you've got someone with a median nerve palsy, those particular muscles may have an ulnar nerve innovation and therefore they're not part of assessment of a median nerve palsy. So if we know our anatomy in a little bit more detail, we're not surprised by the fact that the flexopolysis brevis may not be a true flexopolysis brevis and may have a little ulnar nerve innovation. So the true median nerve assessment is to place, as I've said, the hand flat, lift the thumb up 90 degrees from the uh, orientation of the table against resistance, and you're there testing the APB, the abductor pollicis brevis. Got it? Now... The last muscle here, of course, in that thenar area is, of course, the opponens pollicis, which is deep in its locale and which arises, too, from the flexor retinaculum. And yes, you guessed it, the ridge of the trapezium. And it's inserted into the entire radial border of the first metacarpal, like a, a muscle sheath. Now, of course, all of these three muscles are innervated, as we've said, normally by the recurrent branch of the median nerve. We remember from our head and neck podcast from last year that a recurrent nerve is given off more distally to the territory that it supplies. But of course we don't have many of these. The most famous is the recurrent laryngeal nerve and this thena branch is a recurrent one too. We have a third one in the knee, the recurrent genicular nerve, often a direct branch of the common fibular nerve which can be sensory to the cruciate ligaments and proprioceptive to the tibialis anterior muscle. As I've said, the flexopolysis brevis may have a very variable nerve innovation and it can be dual, both the median nerve and the ulnar nerve. And the test is pure for the median nerve. One can, of course, look at opposition to the little finger and its strength as a test, but I've given you a purer test for someone with a median nerve palsy. We'll go into it um, in a later podcast when we look at an overview of the neurology of the upper limb. Now, we've studied the thenar eminence. We've got to look at the hypothenar eminence, and that has certain similarities. And these include the abductor digiti minimi, the most ulnar woods of the group, which takes its origin from the flexor retinaculum and the pisiform, and which is inserted into the ulnar side of the base of the proximal phalanx, and also into a little bit of the extensor apparatus or extensor expansion on the extensor side. Sesamoids are pretty common here with this insertion. And this has to do, I think, with the dexterity of the digit. The more dexterous the digit, the more likely there is to be a sesamoid in place. The flexor digiti minimi, or in some, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, inserts also into the base of the proximal phalanx. And the opponent's digiti minimi arises from the flexor retinaculum, and you guessed it, the hook of the hamate, and it's inserted along the ulnar length of the little metacarpal, fifth metacarpal. And these muscles are all supplied or innovated, as we said before, by the deep branch, so-called, of the ulnar nerve. The muscles, of course, help 
cup the palm in a hypothema grip. The abductor digiti minimi forms actually part of what is my triple test of the ulnar nerve in an ulnar nerve palsy. And again, I've asked people, just, you know, show me based on the anatomy of the ulnar nerve how you test for an ulnar nerve palsy. And people kind of panic. The easiest thing is just to put your hand flat again and then push out your little finger against resistance. Now, if you have a palmaris brevis, uh, as I do on one hand, on my left hand, you can see the dimpling of the skin. So that already shows that the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve um, is intact. Uh, the flexor carpi ulnaris, which stabilises the pisiform, can be felt contracting. If you put your hand uh, just above your wrist on the ulna side, you'll feel just with your little finger as it moves out that the flexor carpi ulnaris contracts there because what it's doing is stabilising the pisiform bone. And of course, you're testing the strength against resistance of the abductor digiti minimi. So I like that test. I like to call it my test. And um, this is a triple test of the ulnar nerve in ulnar nerve palsy. You're looking for the actions of the abductor digiti minimi, visible impression of the palmaris brevis, and the contraction uh, above the wrist of the flexor carpi ulnaris. So try that one out. It's a good test for an ulnar nerve palsy. Now, this layer of the muscles is in the same plane as the superficial palmar arch and the digital nerve. So you should note these on your own dissections or in some prosected specimen. Of course, the sole, the foot, has only one arch. The superficial arch in the hand is in direct contact with the deep surface of the palmar aponeurosis, so it's pretty superficial. So if you imagine that the ulnar artery is run in front of the retinaculum, that's the principal vessel which forms this arcade, the superficial palmar arch. And in many people, the arterial arcade is actually incomplete. It's not an arch so much as a kind of hockey stick arrangement. And when it's complete, it is completed on the radial side by a superficial palmar branch of the radial artery, which can sometimes be quite a large vessel in front of Athena musculature in a variation. If you pull your thumb out abducted, then that arch, the superficial palm arch, lies at that level in the base of the palm. The superficial palm arch typically gives rise to the palmar digital proper artery to the little finger and then to three so-called common digital palmar arteries with each by, which each by definition divided the web space into proper digital arteries that feed a given side of a digit. So the difference between common digital nerves and proper digital nerves, common digital arteries and proper digital arteries, we need to know. Of course, we know that both sides of the, of the thumb receive their digital blood supply from a discrete branch of the radial artery, the arteria princeps pollicis, as does the radial side of the index finger. Nice name there, the arteria radialis indices. So both not bad terms, actually, to remember. The digital nerves are, of course, here in this plane, and they tend to behave in a similar fashion. Now, it's important that they lie that we know that they lie deep to the arterial arcade at this level, where they are the common digital nerves. But at the web space, they become the proper digital nerves in the way I've defined them. And it's important also to note that in the digits, the nerves lie superficial to the artery. 
so that an injury here where there's a bit of arterial bleeding in a digit is pretty likely to have a digital nerve injury with it. It's also of great importance when you're operating on a Dupatron's contracture which can distort the normal artery to nerve relationship. If you bend a finger into a full bend, take your index finger, and draw a line at the skin crease, then if you stay behind that line, it's very unlikely that you'll injure a digital nerve. So you can make a ver uh, an incision around there and open up the finger, you're very unlikely if you stay behind that line to injure the digital nerve, unless there's gross distortion, which can occur with Dupatrons. Now, as expected, the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve, as we've already said, divides into a medial branch, which innervates the medial fifth digit, and a lateral branch, which becomes the proper digital nerves for the radial side of the little finger and the ulnar side of the ring finger. The median nerve divides after it uh, in the palm beyond the flexor retinaculum as three branches. The medial branch, which is the cleft of the ring and middle fingers, the cleft of the middle and index finger, and this lateral branch also innervates the second lumbrical muscle. The lateral branch here innervates the radial side along with the first lumbrical muscle and then it splits around the thumb. So this leads into the two hand layers uh, and these include the tendons of the long flexors and the lumbricals. Now the tendons run against one another here in the palm. The flexor digitorum superficialis in front the flexor digitorum profundus behind as these pass into individual flexor tendon sheaths. A lumbrical slip of a muscle comes from each flexor digitorum profundus from the radial side, and these run on top of the deep transverse metacarpal ligament, which holds the metacarpals together. So these little muscles develop a slender tendon which runs in a discrete little lumbrical canal. And this actually contributes to part of the extensor expansion of the digit. As I've said before, the ulnar two lumbricals are usually innervated by the ulnar nerve and the radial two by the median nerve. Note that the ulnar lumbricals are bicipital, so that the origin is from two tendons, whereas the median nerve supplies lumbricals that are unicipital. And these muscles support the interosseal, which I'll discuss a bit later, but part of their job is to flex the metacarpophalangeal joint and extend the IP joint. These muscles are actually important in very fine, delicate movement arising from the bare area of the flexor digitorum profundus tendons and forming part, as I've said, of the distal extensor expansion wing. Now, because of their attachment to the extensor expansion, that is how they straighten the fingers and they attach by a relatively inflexible ligamentous attachment which is called the oblique retinacular ligament somewhat distally. And they're important in the pinch so that without them, if the index pinched the thumb, the nails would then really contact it. So it allows you to carry out that kind of movement, precise movement. With the lumbricals, there's an increase in the interphalangeal joint extension, and there's a kind of pulp-to-pulp -pulp contact rather than a kind of nail-to-pulp contact, and that's where they're functional. And it's important to recognise that they're also, for, for obvious reasons, therefore, proprioceptive muscles. Now, the third layer 
is the adductor, adductor pollicis, and the terminations of the radial artery and the deep ulnar nerve. The adductor pollicis lies deeply in the palm and it lies in front of the interossei. There is a transverse head which arises from the whole of the palmar surface of the third metacarpal. And that moves to the ulnar sesamoid bone at the base of the proximal phalanx. It's a little rather fan-shaped muscle. Part of it can move onto the dorsum and support a bit of the extensor pollicis longus. But this head is joined by a little oblique head which takes its origin from the base of the second and third metacarpal and also a little bit of their articulating trapezoid and capitate. This is now quite small print, but not small print is that I should point out that the arc-like origin over the base of the second and third metacarpals of this oblique head of the adductor pollicis is directly embracing the insertion of the flexor carpi radialis that we mentioned before. That's also inserted into the base of the second and third metacarpals. So where that's inserted is embraced by the origin of this head of the adductor. The little oblique head and the transverse head really just join one another. And we should note that there's some homology with the adductor haliosis of the foot. Now, how so? Well, that's a, it's a bit of a favourite question of mine in postgraduate exams. The adductor haliosis also has two heads. There's a larger oblique and a smaller so-called transverse head. So this is one difference. The one arches over the fibularis longus or peroneus longus and takes its origin uh, ligamentous off the long plantar ligament from the bases of the second, third and fourth metatarsals. The little transverse head actually has no bony origin. So there's a difference between the adductor haliosis and the adductor pollicis. The transverse head of the adductor haliosis arises rather from the capsules of the lateral four metatarsophalangeal joints. It doesn't have a bony origin. And these insert into the base of the proximal phalanx of the great toe. So there are some differences between the adductor haliosis and the adductor pollicis. Now returning to the adductor pollicis, if you dissected it correctly, you'll see the deep branch of the ulnar nerve running a kind of gentle curve and sinking into the substance of the muscle. And inside it's an arc. Uh, uh, well, inside it as an arc, I think, is the deep palmar arch. So the deep palmar arch runs inside that nerve. So it's actually quite proximal at the outer aspect of the thumb. So less in the palm than you think of the outstretched thumb. This arcade is completed by the radial artery, and I'll consider that just after we've looked at the fourth layer of muscle. Now, the fourth layer comprises the interossei, and so these, for some reason, I think, confuse the students. I'm, I'm not sure why. There are two rules, and this is the same in the foot of the interossei. The first is that there are three palmar and four dorsal interossei. It's the same in the foot, three, palmar and, uh, three plantar and four dorsal interossei. The second rule is the pad and dab rule, which I'm sure your teachers have told you. Pad is the palmar interossei adduct and dorsal interossei ab abduct. The adduction and abduction 
uh, to or away from the axial digit of the limb. In the hand, it's the middle finger. In the foot, it's the second digit. And that's essentially, those two little rules are all you need to know. Three palmar and four dorsal interossei, or plantar and dorsal interossei for the foot, and pad and dab, and that's it. The palmar interossei are more slender than the dorsal ones, and the smaller ones arise unicipitally from their metacarpal bone. The larger dorsal interossei arise from both metacarpals bicipitally of the metacarpal space, so they've got two heads. Now, the palmar interosseus adductors, I've said, so we don't need, of course, a first palmar interosseus. I've already said that. Um, if there are any slender fibres inserting into the base of the proximal phalanx here from the base of the metacarpal. Um, if it's there, it's not, as I've said, a flexopolysis brevis, and its innovation is part of the ulna nerve, obviously. There's no palmar interosseus for the third digit, the middle finger, because the digit can't adduct towards itself. And obviously there's a second palmar interosseus, one for the ring finger and one for the little finger. So these are inserted into the extensor expansion apparatus of the proximal phalanx. So the first palmar interosseus is on the ulna side of the index. The second one is on the radial side of the ring finger and the third one is on the radial side of the little finger. So these all adduct towards the middle finger. So we've got three palmar interossei. The surface of origin faces towards the middle finger and they're located on the shaft of the finger they act on. The dorsal interossei, in contrast, are more powerful and they're more obvious. If you flex the index finger, the muscle that tightens, if you're looking at the back of the hand, the muscle that tightens between your index and thumb on the back of the hand is the first dorsal interosseous muscle. It's a big muscle, and you can appreciate quite how powerful these are. Um, this is the muscle that typically wastes, as we know when we see an ulnar nerve palsy. You'll see it wasting in other diseases as well. Now, the thumb and the little finger already have abductors, the abductor pollicis brevis and the abductor digiti minimi, so they don't need dorsal interossei, and therefore the dorsal interossei are attached to the index, middle and ring fingers, two, three, four. So there's one on each side of the third finger. The first is a double header muscle, as we know, on the ulnar side of the thumb metacarpal, and one on the radial side of the second metacarpal. The second dorsal interossus is on the radial side of the third digit, the third on its ulnar side. And then the fourth dorsal interossus is between the ring and little fingers, abducting away from the axial digit of the limb, which is the third finger or the third digit. The tendons of these palmar and dorsal interossei all run deep. They're on the dorsal side, dorsal two, the deep transverse metacarpal ligament, and they're inserted largely into the relevant or appropriate, based upon function, side of the extensor expansion, very much like the lumbricals. But the lumbricals have run on the superficial to the deep transverse metacarpal ligament, uh, as well as they're inserted a little bit into the base of the proximal phalanx on that side. And that's, of course, different to the lumbricals. So the interosseum may have a bit of bony insertion that may make them a bit different to the lumbricals um, on occasion, 
uh, when that happens. Of course, all of the interosei are innervated by the ulnar nerve, although rarely the first dorsal interosteus can have a median nerve innervation. And that's the muscle between the thumb and the index that we see so wasted, as I've said, with someone with an established ulnar nerve palsy. Again, these muscles allow a redundancy so that they're powerful metacarpophalangeal flexors and interphalangeal joint extensors. And I'll expand on that a little bit later. The interosseae are inserted, as we've said, into the expansion, the extensor expansion, at the proximal phalanx level. And as I've said, the palmers adduct to the middle finger and the dorsals abduct. I like to repeat things so that it gets into people's head. When acting together, these flex the metacarpophalangeal joints, but extend the interphalangeal joints. The way these fibres insert into the expansion, running horizontally or vertically, tends to pull the phalanges as I've described. The argument against this simple mechanism, of course, is that if the extensor digitorum in a radial nerve palsy, uh, uh, one would expect that this system would allow extension of the distal interphalangeal joint, but it's very weak, even though the interossei are normal. The claw hand of an ulnar nerve palsy allows there to be some extension of the metacarpophalangeal joint, and the distal part of the expansion is too slack to actually straighten that out. Uh, but I think these are minutiae, really, to explain these appearances in an ulnar nerve palsy. Once you flex the MCP joint in these people, the extensor digitorum and the extensor pollicis longus can actually straighten out the distal interphalangeal joint. So these muscles that we've described, the interossei and lumbricals, are more prime MCP flexors, and the extensor digitorum is more of a prime interphalangeal joint um, extensor. So you can get around some of the distal interphalangeal weakness uh, by flexing the metacarpophalangeal uh, joints. Lumbricals are similar, although they're a bit shrouded, I think, in mystery. These are entirely soft tissue in their attachment. They're really kind of proprioceptive connections between the flexor and the extensor tendons. Of course, if you think about it, as the fingers flex, the parent tendon, flexor digitorum profundus, will pull proximally, and so does the lumbrical. So how does the little child, if you like, the, the, the child of the flexor digitorum profundus, straighten the fingers whilst its parent, the flexor digitorum profundus, is trying to pull them into flexion. Of course, the way to test these interossei is with um, basically uh, hand held or a little card perhaps held between the fingers and seeing if the patient can hold that card in place. And I'll come back to those palsies in another uh, podcast when we go over the neurology of the upper limb. So... The next thing we need to probably talk about is the extensor expansions on uh, both sides, uh, or at least on the other side. The thing about this is that the digits uh, form a kind of tough extensor hood. These run across the metacarpophalangeal joint and actually adhere to the capsule. At the proximal phalanx, the area splits into three elements, a central slip that passes on to the base of the middle phalanx, and two lateral slips, sometimes called marginals, that are ultimately inserted into the base of the distal phalanx. 
Now, it's here in its supports quite complex, receiving strong attachments from the interossei and the lumbricals to form what we call an extensor expansion. And these attaching fibres radiate dorsally as a ligamentous structure across the territory of the proximal phalanx. There's further support by some fibrous bands which are called the oblique retinacular ligaments near the head of the proximal phalanx and they stabilise the proximal interphalangeal joint and these have the job really of tightening that apparatus. These allow the full range of movements in full digit extension and flexion. Now this area is actually quite complex with the radial oblique component which runs up to the PIP or proximal interphalangeal joint from the side of the metacarpal but supported by a little transverse retinacular ligament that fills in that space more proximally, a triangular ligament which fills in the space to the extensor expansion. There are collateral bands of the extensor tendons as well as the insertional points of the interossei and lumbricals. So it's a much more complex insertional arrangement. And I should also point out that there's no extensor expansion, of course, for the more mobile thumb. Here the tendons of the extensor pollicis brevis and the extensor pollicis longus are, of course, quite separate. And they're inserted separately at the base of the proximal phalanx and the distal phalanx, respectively. There is, as I say, no extensor hood, but the tendons of the extensor pollicis longus, or that tendon, is supported by a fibrous expansion that comes from the flexor side, from the abductor pollicis brevis, and also from the adductor pollicis. You wouldn't have thought so naturally, but these thinner and deep palmar muscles support the extension or extensor apparatus of the thumb by assisting in holding this down, this rather long extensor tendon, the EPL, and keeping it in place. So that's why that arrangement is like that. And I like to think that these palmar extensions kind of wrap around it a little dorsally to keep it from wandering off its place. Um, now, there are a few other things that we have to cover here uh, before finishing. Uh, what are the coarse and uh, branching uh, of the radial artery and the deep palmar arch? What of the ulnar nerve, its deep branch in particular? And we need to cover also the fibrous flexor sheaths and the synovial sheath apparatus of the hand, perhaps a little something about the practical anatomy of the palmar spaces and palmar space and web space infection. So firstly, let's get into the radial artery in the hand. So it lies in the snuff box. It's against the trapezium and then it sinks between the heads of the first dorsal interosseous muscle where it lies against the adductor pollicis between the two actually and giving off two decent sized branches here which we've already um, heard mention of the arteria radialis indices and the anterior princeps pollicis which become the two proper digital arteries of the thumb. The rest of the artery gets into the palm between the two heads of the adductor pollicis in the way we've described it and is the bulk of the deep palmar arch. The rest of this arch is formed by the deep branch of the ulnar artery and the deep arch lies closer to the wrist is about one centimetre proximal to the superficial arch. So if you stretched out, as I've said, your thumb, it's at level with the back surface of the thumb. Now many make the mistake of thinking that this arch lies sort of in the centre of the palm, whereas in fact it's much more proximal. 
and the deep branch of the ulnar nerve lies inside the cradle of the deep palm arch. The um, arch gives off its metacarpal arteries, which are the web spaces and astomos with the common palmar branches of the superficial arch. And there's a rich set of tiny perforators here, which are anastomos with the dorsal metacarpal arteries. So there's some anastomosis also with the anterior carpal arch. As for the ulnar nerve, at the radial border of the pisiform, superficial to the flexor retinaculum, the ulna, as we know, divides into the superficial and deep branch. The superficial branch we've already met, innovating the palmaris brevis and dividing into the proper digital nerve for the ulna side of the little finger and the common digital nerve, which becomes two propers for the fourth, fifth web space. The deep branch passes between the flexor digiti minimi and the abductor digiti minimi and will often pass through the substance of the deeper opponens digiti minimi grooves round, you guessed it, the hook of the hamate, and it sinks into the depth of the palm inside the deep arch. Now, these are branches to the hyperthena muscles here, the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi, and the opponens digiti, and then to the two ulna woods lumbricals, and then, of course, to all of the palmar and dorsal interossei. And it finally sinks into the substance of the adductor pollicis and supplies both of its heads now, if we compare that with the lateral plantar nerve of the foot, as I've already done, the cutaneous distribution is almost identical. But as I've said uh, now, yes, I, I know I'm repeating myself, the superficial branch in the foot has muscle coverage, innovating the lateral foot muscles, the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi brevis, and often the interosseous muscles are the third plantar and fourth dorsal of the fourth uh, space. The deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve, for another little piece of difference, innovates the lateral three lumbricals rather than a kind of two-two split as occurs in the hand. So there you now know the answers to one of my favourite little exam questions. We've still got a few things to discuss. What about those fibrous flexor sheaths? This, along with the palmar upon neurosis, is actually the first thing we ever dissected. Um, the tendons of the Flexidigitorum superficialis and Flexidigitorum profundus behind go into these sheaths that sit running from the metacarpal heads to the distal phalanx, like those covered bridges that one can find. These are tough sheaths, and in the thumb, it holds down the flexopolysis longus alone, but the structure is essentially the same. The Flexidigitorum superficialis has that very unique decussation around the back of the Flexidigitorum profundus in this sheath and it's historically that decussation is called camper's decussation after petrus camper who was a famous 18th century dutch anatomist he was the prelector anatomiae of amsterdam uh, these fibrous sheaths are also supplemented by slips on either side of the digit uh, from the palmar upon neurosis now this tenderness arrangement is pretty unique the actual arrangement behind the flexor digitorum profundus is actually a partial decussation, more what one might call a chiasm or chiasma, which really means intersection in Latin. And these tendons attach to the side of the shaft of the middle phalanx, forming a sort of soft bed for the flexor digitorum profundus in. So the FDP comes to lie superficially here, and this reaches then the base of the distal phalanx. 
Now, before we consider how this system gets its blood supply, we have to consider the unique nature of the synovial sheaths. Now, these synovial flexor sheaths are pretty important because they can be the source of infections and anatomically show how digital sepsis can spread. The synovial sheath is present around these tendons in the carpal tunnel, and as I said before, is a kind of cul-de-sac bulge, a fair way above into the uh, forearm. The flexor digitorum superficialis and the flexor digitorum profundus have a common synovial sheath, so that infection here can spread quite widely and completely. It's not a great design. It would be a better design if they had separate synovial sheaths. Um, nevertheless, the tendons invest the sheath radially so that they bulge into the synovium rather than being completely invested by it. And there's a separate complete sheath that runs around the flexor pollicis longus to its termination. About half the cases, that separate sheath actually communicates with the common flexor synovial sheath. And these are important because an infection in one particular tendon can then spread across the sheath across into the thumb in those particular cases. It's here also that the lumbrical tunnels can run, and this has implications also for the spread of sepsis if the origin is the lumbrical, and I'll return to that point shortly. Now, to return in the flexor sheath that we have earlier described, both of these tendons, that is the FDS flexor digitorum superficialis and the FDP flexor digitorum profundus, have a synovial investment with a visceral and a reflected parietal layer. And these bring in the small vessels in a strip of synovium, which is called a vinculum, or vinculi, which is just Latin for chain. Now, this, for me, is for some reason hard to remember. The insertion, FDP, has its short vinculum, the vinculum brevium. And the vinculum longum occurs just proximal to the chiasm, between the split FDS around the proximal phalanx. The vinculum brevia of the FDS is where it is inserting at the middle phalanx. And the vinculum longum there is double, just where it's dividing at the proximal phalanx. So only the vincula longa are vascular. The way to see all of this is on a dissected specimen by just lifting the tendons off the front of the proximal and middle phalanx and the vincula longer of the FDP are more distally located than those of the FDS, and these are the vascular supply to the tendon. The insertion point at the vincula breva are not vascular. And we also need to know the terminology of the hand surgeons with sepsis and injury here around these flexor tendons. They like the pulley system, and we hear that all the time, so we need to know what they are. The A1 pulley is at the metacarpal head, the longer A2 pulley at the base of the proximal phalanx. The A3 pulley is at the PIP joint, the proximal interphalangeal joint, and the A4 pulley is at the middle of the middle phalanx. And there's an A5 pulley at the distal part of the distal phalanx. Well, so who cares about that? Well, one other way is to square the injury with what you see. The A1 is in the distal palm before the web um, space. The A2 spans the digital web. The A3 is just before the next joint. The A4 over the substance of the middle phalanx. And the A5 just beyond the distal skin crease. So these are how these things get injured by a shard of glass or something, which damages, obviously, the stability of the flexor tendon.
Their job is to hold down the tendon complex to allow it to glide and move freely. So some people like the analogy, if you like, of the eyelets of one of those fishing rods which holds the line against the rod. That's the way they actually behave. Now, this mechanically also maximises the amount of flexion for the amount of muscle contraction. That is, that it makes the flexor apparatus more efficient. Of course, it also permits a segmental action, the flexion of the IP or the DIP joints independently. In the way we've learned this, then, it's the A2 and the A4 pulleys that are the major elements of the system as these insert directly into bone. And it's because of that that they're more prone to injury. The others attach to the volar plate. And where this stuff has a particular importance is in things like rock climbing, where the fingers are crimped across a ledge and where if the mechanism is actually injured, you get a, a, a tendon bowstringing making that impossible. So this kind of injury is actually important for that very powerful movement where the rock climber puts their fingers up against a very narrow ledge and there's this kind of flexion and also pressure and hyperextension the other way. You need that to be an efficient mechanism to hold your body weight against a very minimal point. Um, I've got, I think, I suppose one more thing to talk about, and that's the brief anatomy of hand sepsis. One could talk about this in great detail, but we'll just cover it from an anatomical perspective. It's a massive and really interesting topic, but let's make it brief. Firstly, uh, I was asked about this in my fellowship exams, I should say. So you might think it's kind of trivial, but the examiners like it, and there you are all sort of prepared to talk about resecting a pancreas, pancreatic cancer or something, and the examiner then asks you about your management of a felon or a whitlow. So that's what I was asked. So we better know what these are. We recall that the synovial sheaths in the carpal tunnel incorporating the flexor tendon group extends proximally into the lower forearm. And that also applies to the separate sheath as I mentioned for the flexor pollis longus, in some rare cases, that separate sheath may also occur for the uh, ring finger can be part of a common sheath that could have implications in the spread of mid-palm resepsis as well. So the anatomy here and the anatomical differences are actually clinically important. And we know also that this can communicate with the flexor pollis longus sheath too in up to about half the cases. Lumbrical tunnel sepsis also has the potential to communicate here in proximal extension. So the relevance is in the formation of so-called palmarous spaces. So here the palmar aponeurosis splits, as we remember, out like a triangle that attaches to the fibrous flexor sheaths of the digits, but that also sends septa deeply into the palm. On the ulnar side, there's a soft tissue attachment to the palmar border of the fifth metacarpal. The hypothenus space doesn't enclose any long tendons, but it's separate from the other spaces. So that's important in sepsis too. There's a deep fascial connection from the aponeurosis to the middle metacarpal, creating a radial thena space and an ulna woods mid-palmar space. And so we talk about mid-palmar space infection. The septum can actually move radial or ulna woods, and the anatomy is important here since in some cases the flexor tendon to the index finger can also move into the mid-palmar space rather than being in the thena space, be part of that only with the first lumbrical tunnel 
part of the thena space. So the midpalmar space has as its floor the interosseae and generally the fourth and fifth metacarpal bones, and it incorporates typically the ulna or ulna woods, three lumbrical tunnels. The thena space, on the other hand, is overlaid by the thena muscles and the flexor tendons of the thumb and usually the index finger, except when it's not, as I've said. And uh, its floor is the adductor pollicis, but also that small space between the adductor, adductor, and the first dorsal interosseus, where the radial artery runs. And at the wrist, the parietal layer of the synovial sheaths fuses to the flexor retinacular, tending to sort of close that area off uh, so that that part doesn't rise above the wrist. The web spaces we can all see, and these lie between the slips of the aponeurosis attachments. Their anatomy is actually quite complex and important. In this territory is the superficial and the deep transverse metacarpal ligaments, which, uh, which we briefly discussed. Uh, here also lies the digital neurovascular bundle, and the tenderness insertional points of the interossei and the lumbricals as they're making their way to the extensory expansion. Um, the superficial transverse metacarpal ligament is also called in some texts the natatory, N-A-T-A-T-O-R-Y ligament at the web space. That has a variable thickness, more so radially and kind of petering out a bit on the ulna side. And here it's supporting the skin by its attachment to the fibrous flexor sheaths. So something uh, very developed, for example, in uh, web-footed creatures. And I should point out that some separation uh, of the transverse ligament of the palmar aponeurosis, the so-called ligament of skug, as it's called, can occur. The relevance of this notatory ligament is that the digital nerves and vessels are immediately deep to it. Need to be careful here if a web space incision is made or if a web space has become injured. The other point here is that in the mid palm, the superficial palm arch, as I've said, is in front of the nerves, but by the stage of the digital web space, the nerve has made its way to a more superficial position in front of the vessel. So, of course, we can see that generally, to repeat myself, that an injury showing arterial bleeding in a web space, uh, it's more likely that the digital nerve the proper digital nerve has been injured. The little lumbricals lie just deep to this uh, and that's relevant in infection. There's, of course, as I've said, a deep transverse metacarpal ligament and that lies at a deeper level and it's attached actually to the capsule of the metacarpophalangeal joints and the volar plate and it's much more proximal uh, than the web space notatory ligament. It's about an inch proximal, actually with the interossei tendons dorsally located at this ligament and the lumbricals lying superficially. So that it's the deep transverse metacarpal ligament that splits those two as they both make their way to the extensor expansion. <clears throat> now, because of the mobility of the thumb, this arrangement, superficial and deep metacarpal ligament, is, of course, absent. And that area, as we know, is filled in with the adductor pollicis and the first dorsal interosseous muscle and the first lumbrical. Um, there's a comparative anatomy in the foot, of course, as the deep transverse metatarsal ligaments at the level of the heads of the metatarsal bones, but there's only one single structure which um, uh, basically ties into the longitudinal and transverse arches of the foot, which is a more complex arrangement whose stability arrangement there differs. And this is, for example, also attached to a ligament 
called the least franc ligament that doesn't exist in the hand, a band of plantar tissue spanning the articulation between the medial cuneiform and the second metatarsal. So in the foot for deep transverse metatarsal ligament, that's like a tie bar that's actually stronger and designed to stop the foot splaying. It's far less significant in the hand. The deep transverse metatarsal ligament, for example, also connects the lateral sesamoid bone with the head of the second metatarsal. So there's a difference. This ligament is more important in upright stance pressure gradients and in withstanding pressure. And I'll go over this area in more detail in the podcast on the foot. Uh, that's going to appear much later this year. Pulp spaces are heavily compartmentalised, coming back to the hand, by tiny septi, as we know, and this area is limited by attachment to the distal digital skin crease. We need to know these infections, as I said, I was asked about them in my fellowship exam. A whitlow, for example, very painful and infectious viral uh, origin in some people of the thumb and fingertips. Rarely it infects the toes uh, and the natal, uh, the nail cuticle. And that's really the same, if you like, a whitlow as a paronychia. Uh, that's different from a felon, which affects the pad of the fingertip. So I was asked, how do you manage a whitlow and how do you manage a felon? And he expected that I should stumble at that uh, particular opening question in my fellowship exam. I think before we conclude, uh, let's try and apply this anatomy in the management presentation of hand sepsis. We just should mention that superficial sepsis includes onychomycosis, paronychia in the way I've described it, uh, a felon, um, about 15% of all hand sepsis most commonly on the thumb or, or, or the index finger is a felon. Most whitlow is actually herpetic. Deep sepsis, on the other hand, might be a synovial space infection. That in, can include spread to the space of parona. We mentioned that in an earlier podcast. Uh, these tissues have very poor vascularity and they're rich in synovial fluid, which actually allow, allows a very rapid and sometimes an alarming spread. These are the cases of suppurative tenosynovitis. Uh, sometimes they can become chronic, and this can be associated with tenderness, necrosis, and rupture, as well as intrasheath adhesions. Uh, people have described so-called four cardinal signs of this sinovitis, so-called cannabel signs, which includes a fusiform swelling of the entire finger, pain on passive extension, a resting state of the digit which is held in partial flexion, and volar tenderness along the entire length of the finger, which means that there's a complete involvement of the synovial sheath. The other type of deep space infections, as we mentioned, are thena, mid-palmar and hypothena in the manner I've described the anatomy. The space is, of course, deep to the tendons, but in front of the interossei and the adductor pollicis. On the thena side, a web space incision on the volar side needs to be wary of the recurrent thena nerve, the mid-palmar space, of course, can communicate with the space of perona anterior to the uh, pronata quadratus. And then the third deep space infections I'm including are web space sepsis, and these can extend onto the volar and the dorsal side. Uh, yeah, they can do both in what's known as a sort of collar button abscess. Uh, fourth amongst the deep sepsis would be a dorsal subaponeurotic space 
um, infection deep to the tendons. Um, the fifth might be a septic arthritis. The sixth could be a necrotizing fasciitis, or the seventh, I suppose, an osteomyelitis. So there are a number of other sort of classifications if you're looking for deep space infections. Now, I think we'll stop there. That completes what I want to talk about with hand anatomy. And the next podcast, I'll go through a little bit about the carpus and metacarpus, and we'll have an overview, I think, of the neurology of the upper limb. And then in the following podcast, we'll run... Uh, an upper limb quiz with questions and answers so thanks for so much for listening and i'll see you next time